You're listening to Out of Nowhere, a series featuring emergent brands with somewhat unexpected origins. Your host is Justin Watkins of Native Digital, a marketing firm specializing in brand messaging and performance media. Let's jump in. Started with beer. That's what got my attention first. Um, have you ever made beer before, Justin? I haven't. Uh, so there's there's four simple ingredients in in making beer: um, just barley, water, hops, and yeast, or you know, sometimes some other grains. Right, the grains, um, you know, water, hops, and yeast. And it is uh, perfectly legal as a eighteen or nineteen year old to go out and buy the ingredients to make beer. Um, and so. I was pretty intrigued by that when my uh, my buddy presented me with the uh, the idea that we should start making some of our own homebrew and fell in love with it pretty quickly. And, you know, in the uh, in the early days was really just brewing uh, for ourselves and, you know, sharing, but kind of got got really interested in the craft beer movement. This was 2000. 2010 right when we really started to see this resurgence in independently owned you know craft breweries emerging there's about two new ones opening per day I, I later learned you know at the time and was uh just loved it and wanted to to, to start uh start my own brewery until I realized that every time I made beer I was also like making all this food and, and throwing it away and I had this moment where I was tipping the stuff into a dumpster because we didn't have a compost bin, let alone, you know, garden to, to put it into. And I was like, wait a minute, what are breweries doing with their so-called spent grain? How's this stuff taste? You know, and, and started just asking bigger and bigger questions. And and I, I guess it's that that initial point of curiosity, that spark that's that's stuck with me um, now you know, over a decade later from the original idea and the business hasn't been been full time for for that long. But um, it really this this kind of it hit me like a ton of bricks, you know, this this just idea for thinking differently about um, about food supply chains. And, you know, it seemed like, you know, there's a lot of ways that business actually uh, created a lot of the the problems that were um you know, that we're, we're now dealing with the consequences of, you know, as it relates to short-term thinking and, you know, a lot of stuff that I'm always happy to, <laughs> to get on my high horse and pontificate about. But, um, I, you know, I was also struck by how, you know, a business model that reduces waste on one end and creates nutrition on the other end is an actual authentic vehicle for generating profit in a way that also is in the pursuit of, of, of greater purpose. And, um, through all the ups and downs, you know, that's uh, that kind of that, that spark, that curiosity, that, um, you know, kind of kernel of, of, of purpose way back when I was just homebrewing beer in a fraternity house has, has stuck with me. That's cool. It seems it just seems like it was like an obvious to you. You're like, wait, is this trash or is this somebody's treasure? And like, what's the process to convert that? And is it worth the energy and time to do that? How do you when you're talking with people today now that you have been on this journey and you've created Regrain, like how do you explain the business as it is today like how do you explain it to someone who's in the industry how do you explain it to someone who's just like a friend who may not understand all the nuances of what you guys do yeah i, I like to start high level because you know fundamentally what we're doing is helping companies make incredibly tasty food 
that is better than what is already on the shelf in terms of its nutritional value at the same price point. And oh, by the way, the production of this also is solving a major problem. So I don't assume that the people that I'm meeting or talking to necessarily care about the climate crisis or necessarily care about food waste. Although I've never met anyone, I have to say, Justin, that is in favor of food waste. Um, you know, especially when you think about just the the sheer numbers of it. You know, so the, the amount of food that we're wasting every year as a food system is like the equivalent of us going into a grocery store and leaving with five bags and then just dropping two in the parking lot on the way back to the car. And being okay with that, like no one's okay with that. It doesn't matter where you are in your uh, acceptance or denial of the climate crisis or where you are in the you know, political or ideological, you know, spectrum, you know, no one, no one, uh, no one's against, no one is uh, in favor of food waste. But even, even if, I mean, fundamentally, we're talking about food, we eat, you know, every day, um, you know, those of us who are lucky enough to, you know, have uh, the ability to, to do that. Uh, and every time we eat, we, we, you know, what we're, what we're eating has, has impact, you know, beyond, you know, the, uh, on ourselves, but fundamentally it's got to taste good and you know, make it feel good. And so, um, yeah, we, I mean, what we're, what we're trying to do is give food companies tools to, you know, create products that people will crave and, and, and love and incorporate into their diets. And as a co-product of doing that, we'll create some impact, you know, along the way. Yeah. So, you, I think, wisely lead with the business case, right? When you're in these conversations and you show that it makes uh, dollars and cents. Uh, and then you said, like you said, by the way, you know, you this is a problem that you probably didn't have a solution for or one that you weren't motivated to try to solve and we can help solve that. And so, hey, that there's some feel good to it because we understand what you're incentivized to do here as an organization. How long did it take you? Was it was the business case there from day one or did it take time and efficiency to be able to say, okay, now we're, now we're cost efficient or we can add value in these ways. Was that a process or was that day one? It's, uh, I mean, a little, a little bit of both. Like the kernel was there from day one because crudely put our business model is turning trash into money, right? Sure. And that's, um, you know, there's a lot of precedent for that. There's even uh, examples in food, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure type of type of thinking is just fundamental kind of common sense. Um, and so, you know, that that aspect of it existed from the beginning, although what has changed over time is, you know, the way uh, the way in which we're communicating that message to you know, like decision makers or influencers, uh, you know, the types of companies we're, we're trying to work with. And, you know, back when we started thinking about this problem, there hadn't even been a like broad quantification of the food waste problem and an opportunity that the first big landmark report uh, that I'm aware of that came out around that was in 2012 from the NRDC. Um, it's called uh, The Wasted by, by Dana Gunders. And, you know, that really kickstarted a, a conversation um, that has now evolved to the place where something like 75% of the world's like 250 biggest food companies now have public commitments and goals tied to food waste reduction. So today we're able to have a, a a different conversation than we were able to have at the beginning, you know, of the of the company. Whereas you know today it's uh, the problem is well known, you know, there's awareness and it's about moving people to action. You know, in the early days there was definitely a lot of awareness building we needed to do, 
we also had a lot of work to do just on the fundamentals of the business to make sure that there was something viable, you know, to, to, to grow. Um, so yeah, a little bit like the question, a little bit of both. Yeah. Uh, it feels like everywhere we look in our lives uh, and in the world, there is this like pursuit of more and you ignore the waste and the byproducts along the way. And the thing that stunts you from getting more is that you have too much waste. And I can name a number of industries and analogies where that is the case. I just think we go more, 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 and let's not look at the waste. And then we say, well, why can't we do more? Or why can't we do the thing we want? Well, we got so much waste. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's, that's the, one of the perils of what's uh, kind of termed in the kind of jargony, you know, business lexicon is like uh, the linear economy, you know, so take, make waste, it's extractive. It's looking at things in one direction. Right. And it's really um, a very human uh, take. It's not how nature works. Um, and so, the, I mean, the alternative to the linear economy is what uh, is referred to as the circular economy, where it's uh, where ends are reimagined as 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 beginnings. And you know, on paper, it's it's kind of it's common sense. And again, this follows how the natural world works. You know, a tree falls in the forest, and whether or not anyone's around to hear it uh, fall, um, you know, once it's, once it's down, that, that tree then becomes, uh, you know, part of the fertile, you know, soil that then, you know, becomes new life, you know, in redwood forests, they're called, they're actually called nurse logs, you know, and that's a great example of, of circularity and, you know, waste is, is, is food and, um, you know, these systems kind of can, can regenerate and sustain themselves. And, um, it's very, uh, new, relatively speaking, um, last hundred or so, you know, years as, you know, the uh, economy has become increasingly industrialized that we've um, really uh, started to see some of the um, negative impacts of that, of that linear thinking of that take, make waste. And um, it's something that we're trying to play a role in helping to open folks' eyes to, hey, there's another way to, another way to do this. And um, it's, it's better for all stakeholders. Yeah. When, when you were just getting off the ground and you're just going to go, you got the concept, you're like, Oh, there's something here. Who was most like accepting of this? Like who were like maybe called early adopters where was it like the, was it like the microbreweries are like, Oh, cool. Now there's another purpose for this. Or like we dumped this or we gave it there's, this is a better use for it. Or was it the food companies are like, Oh, wow, this is interesting. Like who, who was getting excited about it early on? I mean, quite honestly, I think my first customer was my friend, David, who, uh, was it was after a, a, a you know we'd, we'd bake bread um in this uh college environment and we'd have people floating around and i'd sell loaves of bread to them uh you know after maybe a a night of imbibing some some libations right and um then I'd I'd uh, try and use the money from that to buy more ingredients to make more beer. I realize that's probably not the the actual question you know that you're asking, but the the honest truth is, yeah, the first the first people were you know just the, my peers you know and friends that that were around, and um, in addition to having a convenient source of you know late night snacking for them, um, the I, I did have the early opportunity just trying to explain what what this was and why I was spending my time baking bread. Um, and I found that there was a very natural interest and acceptance in this idea. You know, people were interested to learn how beer was made and that there was this 
grain that was left behind that was actually more nutritious because the sugars are taken in the beer making process and what's left is fiber and protein and oh here taste it oh it tastes great too and that gave me the first inkling that there could be um, interest more broadly in like a product on a grocery store shelf you know that was made with this kind of ingredient and so then the question became well why aren't you know some of these companies uh, that we see on the shelf today not doing this yet um, and so our business, we've got stakeholders upstream and, and downstream. And so upstream would be like you're asking about the, you know, the breweries and, you know, certainly spent a good amount of time reaching out uh, to different brewery owners and you know asking what they're what they're doing with their grain. Is this a problem that they have that they need solving? Um, and it took us a little bit more time on the downstream stakeholders, the, the end customers, uh, you know, to get those relationships around, you know, why you know, some of the household name brands that you see, see on the shelf, you know, aren't doing anything, you know, uh, with this today, what we actually did as a first step was started, built our own brand and put the, put this material into our own products and then introduced that to, to retailers as a, as a standalone. But for the, the brewery, um, side of things, you know, what we learned was that about 80% of breweries have, uh, like, animal feed uh, opportunities for their their brewer's grain. They're not really typically selling it, um, or if they are, it's for very low economic value. Uh, for some urban breweries, it is an actual problem because, I mean, to your point earlier, like they couldn't actually make more beer until they got the grain from the day before out. And so if they, you know, someone missed a pickup, you know, it was a, it was a problem for them. Um, no one was super happy with the way things were working, you know, in the, in, in the beer world and several, uh, times, uh, you know, we received the feedback of, oh, finally someone is, is doing this. I had this idea. <laughs> um, and so it felt like the, the value creation, you know, on the supply side was, um, was, was, was quite evident. And then what we needed to, to do from there is make sure that we could actually create meaningful amounts of a you know, viable product that could be, you know, sold to, to other food companies and that they, you know, so just because it can be done doesn't mean it should be done. Right. So um, it took us, you know, years of uh, building relationships and doing formulation work and things like that to, you know, better understand um, for, you know, the food, the food companies, um, how this stuff can be used, how it should, how it should be used. And, you know, ultimately the reason we're still in business is we've gotten very positive feedback that they, they really like this material that we've created uh, and um, it, it is solving for, uh, you know, problems that, that they have. And that opened us up to, you know, even more opportunity around other supply chains that are overlooked and undervalued and other types of products that we can create with the brewer's grain product. And that's kind of going out of scope from your, from your question, but that's what comes up for me. Uh, yeah. No, it, prompt. having toured uh, my fair share of microbreweries, um, you, on those tours, they'll say, yeah, this is where the spent grain goes. We've got a local farmer who comes, picks it up, and they might even mention, yeah, we just give it to them, you know, and and as long as they get it out of here, you know, we're happy. And I mean, what yeah. you're doing is creating something that has more than zero dollar value, right? Like you are saying, hey, this is a pretty good input, and we have a conversion process, and we know someone on the other end of this who can take it and do something pretty unique with it. So, but we were all waiting for someone to do that. Yeah. Yeah, we. I mean, I've heard some really inspiring examples too. Like I, I remember early on, I was uh, just tearing through founder memoirs and books and things like that that were related to the industry, and was particularly inspired by the um, 
Sam from Dogfish Head Brewery, who, you know, just now a, a household name brand. Um, and they, and one of their original brew pubs would, you know, give their, their spent grain. So, and I like to call it so-called spent grain, right? Cause spent is a misnomer and stuff is we call it super grain. Cause it's actually from a nutritional perspective, it was a food ingredient, much, much better than spent, but from brewery's perspective, it spent its ability to make beer. So the spent grain, you know, they'd, they'd give to a local farmer and then they'd get some of the beef back, you know, from, from that. And they also use some of it in, um, in the dough for like a, a in-house bun that they were making and you could get a you could get like a burger on the on the menu that was kind of this like full circle example and i found that just super inspiring and, and heartening and um you know i had a strong desire to see if we could play a role in making that happen on a larger scale because it's much more efficient um for you know, if you think of just like pure entropy of, of energy, right? Like if you, it takes a lot of, you know, grain to raise livestock and then, um, you know, only, you only get so much of that in your, in, in your consumption and there's lots of impact and, you know, and waste along, along that value chain too. Whereas if we can just eat this stuff directly, you know, it's just like eating, you know, plant-based and why that's, why that's better, but it's got to taste great. You know, first, first and foremost, none of that other stuff matters if you can't create uh, products that deliver on flavor first. Yeah. So you've got the idea. Some people have said, oh, we've been waiting for this. seems like people are on board and excited about it. If you think about the way you've communicated what you do, has is the way you communicated it on day one the same as the way you do it now? Was there a point in the process where you're like, oh, we now kind of portray ourselves as this, or I communicate the value prop as this. I learned that this is the thing that they're interested in. Like what was... What's the evolution of like the message from beginning to, to today? Yeah, sometimes I joke. It's kind of like the uh, like the David Bowie strategy, where we just kind of kind of been reinventing ourselves from 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 day one. Um, we definitely have not kept a static, you know, message, and you know, we always try to also meet people where they are, right, and, and say different things. Uh, all, all of them true, right, but highlighting different uh, aspects of what we're doing depending on, on who we're talking to. And so, I mean, we've developed uh, assets around the uh, slogan, eat beer, you know, for example, which was uh, very effective at getting a certain demographics attention, you know, pretty, pretty different, um, you know, had some downsides in terms of like, okay, does this have alcohol in it? Does this taste like beer? Can I give this to my kids? Right. To even how we came up with the term upcycled foods. I mean, we started with, uh, repurposed, we tried, um, you know, reclaimed and, you know, lots, lots of different language. And we found that while the term upcycling is new to many people, especially uh, when we started using it, uh, you know, we were among the first to, to use it related to, to food. It's fairly intuitive once you kind of cue them as to what this is and, you know, and, and, and why you're doing it. Um, I also would say that, you know, in the early uh, having been a, young entrepreneur, you know, relatively young entrepreneur starting this as a college project initially, you know, had some perceptions around how much the rest of the world cared about sustainability for the sake of sustainability. And so I would say, you know, in the earlier days, we we're definitely much more heavy handed in some of the better for the world messaging. Whereas, you know, as I introduced on this, on the show, now the way we talk about it more is like, hey, here are all the values of this thing, just about it just in general and oh by the way it's also more sustainable and that can be a reason for 
you know, for loyalty. And we don't necessarily need to rely on that as a reason for purchase. Although increasingly it is a reason for purchase. We just recognize that, um, you know, there's a, a, a more universally, um, you know, kind of accepted, uh, acceptable, you know, message yeah, it, that, that, that we can start with, you know, so that, yeah, that's, that's some of the ways that that's changed over, over time. Yeah. I think that exploration is healthy and it's natural, right? Like you're trying things and seeing how people react to it. And then in different environments and contexts, it's going to change, right? Like a, a, a B2B partner comes to a meeting, they have an initiative that they've got to do. And it's usually not saving the world. When you are a B2C consumer going to the grocery store, you usually have an initiative, which is I got to feed myself with something decent. And it's not, how can I go to this grocery store and save the world? Now that all of those things end up being, everybody has different levels of altruism, but like in that context, it is. And so that's where we learn, okay, yeah, that might be my driver, but what's their driver in this moment and going to get them to take action. And then, and then what's the feel good of it? Does it taste good? Is it all, you know, it's all those things, but you got to keep exploring to see what those hooks are and, and prioritize those things. Yeah. I mean, very well put that, that resonates deeply. Yeah. Is there one where, is there a way of introducing um, regrained or upcycled where whenever you found it, you just got excited because you saw it like click? Are there any moments where you were saying it one way and then you explain another and you're like, oh man, we found something here. That's a a really good question. Um, I've had, I've been fortunate to have the opportunity to do a good amount of speaking publicly about, uh, about our work and about, and about the mission and have had through that, the opportunity to try different, you know, different messages. uh, And you get good feedback from the crowd sometimes. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, I think like what seems to click is we we try to really inspire curiosity in people as to like where how food is made where it comes from you know because a lot of people don't really realize the provenance of what they're you know what they're consuming and in a lot of cases even something like uh, like for okay so for example like justin do you drink coffee I don't. I'm a tea. I'm a tea guy. You're a tea person. Okay. Well, this will. Uh, you're familiar with coffee, so I'm yes, yes, with yes. This example. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the coffee, the coffee bean, so called, right? That's that's most people buy in a bag. Many people buy pre ground or in a Keurig cup or whatever. Or, you know, already you know brewed into something that they can just crack open and and drink. Um, like a lot of people don't actually realize that that bean is effectively the pit of a fruit. And that fruit grows on a tree and that, you know, that, that tree has, uh, has, has leaves, you know, that have properties. And so like the, the coffee tree, uh, you know, the, 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 actually it's a, here we go, threading, threading into you as a tea drinker. Um, you should try coffee leaf tea. It's a, a, a wonderful, uh, delicious product that's actually created, you know, possible to create it every time coffee is, is harvested. The, uh, the cherry from uh, the coffee also, it's um, you know, coffee fruit or cascara, as it's sometimes called, has a lot of antioxidants, has caffeine, has um, you know, s- some great flavor. And people don't really like think about that a lot of times when they're when they're drinking coffee or if they're eating chocolate, you know, the coffee, the chocolate bean cacao is also, you know, it's the really the like the pit of the cacao. And cacao is a fruit. Um, did you know that? Have you ever tasted cacao? 
Um, if you've ever eaten a cashew, if anyone's listening, eats cashews, look up what cashew fruit looks like online. You'll think you're visiting another planet. It's like the a little nub on the end of, a, of an apple. You know, and so, you, you know, you start to like share some of these things with, with people and especially with, with visuals we found where it kind of clicks as, um, as common sense. And they start from a place of, oh, I get it. Like this isn't, we're not already doing this. Why, why not? Um, and that's, uh, you know, something that, yeah, we've just been trying to, you know, inspire more and more of, I guess, in, in our interactions with different stakeholders. One of the things that strikes me from a lot of the conversations we have on this is that, <clears throat> like, I'll take another uh, interview we did here recently with John from Cruise Foam. He was surfing and he was thinking about building surfboards and he wanted to do it without petroleum. And then he realized that it wasn't the surf thing that was the opportunity. It was this, uh, what materials have better properties than what's created in petroleum, right? And you yeah. were making beer and throwing stuff away. And you're like, this seems wasteful. And I just feel like 30 years ago, uh, John would have made surfboards and you would have figured out how to sell as much beer as you could. But we have a new generation that is awakening to some of the things that are a bigger issue. <clears throat> and it's not just about making more products. It's about like, well, this seems like a problem that nobody's solving that would solve that. So I just feel like there's these critical moments, right? Where a passion opens us up to something and we've got a generation now who's choosing this versus that. And, and we need it, like we need it desperately. And so I'm like, it's like a, it's like a privilege to be able to meet these people who are choosing that path and then like putting, you know, a decade of plus work into like yeah. figuring out like, how do we solve for this? And in some ways it all, it, it's like nobody did it, but it was also common sense waiting for someone to do it. Like, of course we should be doing this. And so a lot of us, I think are like, oh, cool, good. Someone's taking action here. They're pioneering a category and other people will come up behind them and try to start competing with them and doing the same things. But um, yeah. And when we're all like, cool, good. Like that. <laughs> but uh, it's just an observation I've had is it feels like the path, it's a different path that people are taking today. Thankful yeah, they are. I, I appreciate that observation. And I think, um, you know, it can't be understated how important timing is and everything, right? Too. Oh, yeah. And uh, we live in a, you know, we're of a generation broadly where the barriers to starting a, a business and taking action on your ideas are relatively low. Um, it still requires people to actually take action <laughs> on their ideas, right? But it's uh, costs almost nothing to build, you know, to build a website. Um, in, in, like in our early days, for example, it, it happened to coincide with um, a regulation in California that enabled food producers of certain types of goods in a home kitchen to get their home kitchen certified so that they could commercially sell certain quantities of, of, of products. It's like a, it's called broadly is referred to as like cottage foods um, regulations and they exist in, in many States before that passed. If we wanted to launch a food product, we would have had to rent a commercial kitchen or find a contract manufacturer but because we were able to get our home kitchen certified, we were able to produce a hundred granola bars in an afternoon and package them and sell them at a farmer's market the next, the next weekend and have a small bit tiny business, like a nano business really. But to be on that path, you know, that, that, that we could hope would lead to where we are 
today and you know 30 years ago that wasn't the case yeah this is you can get the ball rolling and you can test it out and start to kind of prove things and and get that start climbing those stairs what's the if you just look back of all the hurdles you've had to overcome to get to where you are today is there one in particular that you're like man that's a tough one or you're like so proud of the team for you know getting past that one is there one that stands out to you Yeah, I mean, we've been pretty creative in um, the ways in which we've raised money behind the idea. Like this is this is not this is the kind of idea that needs external capital in, in order to be realized. Um, and you know, it sounds trite, but like most good ideas fail because they run out of money, right? Under resourced, uh, yes, yeah. yeah. And uh, this is. It's not like we're a, a a wild success, you know, and you know, in this, but I mean, we definitely like approached it differently. You know, the traditional model would be to find a like a venture capitalist or a, you know a, a group of angel investors to plow a bunch of money into the company, and you know that creates pressures around turning turning around returns in a short amount of time, which can affect decision making. And you know, we wanted to think to think differently about that. And you know, one of the ways that we did that again, timing matters too, right? So there's a, a regulation that. Um, passed related to the the jobs act that enabled um community investing like equity equity crowdfunding is another way this is this is referred to and we had one of the first and one of the most successful uh, uh equity crowdfunding you know, campaigns in, uh, in in 2018 for our for our sector and um we that really like i'm really proud of uh, you know what we accomplished in that and it also opened us up to a different type of you know, strategic capital, you know, as it were, and that these are a lot of them were everyday people. Some of them were in the industry. Um, we ended up doing it a second time. We now have like over a thousand investors in this class. And some of them have got come on to become advisors where they have relevant experience um, or introduced us to, you know, to critical hires. And we were advised uh, to not pursue this as a because it was as a capital strategy because it was new and unknown and um our intuition said that this is on mission for us we can you know have bring in investors that you know we've seen at whether it's at a farmer's market or in a grocery store demo or at a trade show how excited people get about our idea why not let them own our mission and our success with us. Like, I think we can do this. And we decided to do it. And it was, it was definitely hard work, but it's something I'm really proud of, you know, and uh, kind of behind the scenes of how we've uh, uh, gotten the you know resources behind the business to, to continue to, to operate. It's such a vote of confidence too, from so many people. I'm struggling to come up with the cons for, for doing that. I'm sure there's some that exist, but we don't need to get into them, but it's such a, I mean, to me, it's like, wow, proof of concept really clicks here and people are rooting for us and, and basically invested in our long-term success personally. So I think it's outstanding. When you when you look at, you know, 5, 10, 20 years down the road, what's on the horizon? Like what, what are reasons for optimism for the industry, for other companies like you, for Regrain itself? Like what are the things that you foresee coming and or the ones that like get you excited? Like you're you're ready for this. Yeah, I, mean, I think a lot of it is related to the point I was making earlier on how there's less, at least in the business to business world that we 
engage in commercially, um, there's less work than there was before around awareness building and more about taking that awareness and trying to help folks understand how to put it into how to put it into action like there's mm -hmm. um there's now it's still we're still early on in the adoption curve and we have a lot of market building work still to do especially for some of these new to the world ingredients that people at these food companies that are developing new products don't necessarily know that they should be looking for upcycled alternatives to conventional commodities or new upcycled ingredients that they can develop products around. But then when they learn about them, then they realize that it is something that, you know, that, that they were actually you know, looking for um, as that next, next, next best thing. And so, you know, we're starting to, to see more of our customers commercialize their products like this, uh, this launch at Kroger is a really big deal for the sector and for our company uh, specifically. Uh, you know, this is one of the largest retailers um, in, in the world. Uh, their private, you know, their private label program, they've got a couple thousand stores, they've got, uh, you know, two flavors of upcycled bread. Um, and then they've got another uh, couple upcycled product lines uh, that are in the, the baking mix category. Um, that uh you know appear in the space where it was it wasn't was involved with and that helps de-risk this yeah. for others to to follow right so it's validated um, yeah. you know we're, we're start, yeah we're starting to see more and we're kind of like trying to find the right players in each product application that we think is a good fit for these ingredients to like be the first to go um, and then they'll, you know, they'll get a head start and they'll get accolades and such for being innovative. Like Kroger just won an award at the private label manufacturers association, you know, for this, for this innovation, um, for example, you know, then there's, there's lots of benefits to the first mover. Uh, but then, you know, as these, as we see more activations from particularly, you know, what we're interested in is we love supporting startups too, but like conventional brands that are extending into this, this, this area. Um, and so, yeah, feeling, you know, very optimistic about it in that in that respect um you know the uh the statistic i shared at the top of the the show too um around how the vast majority of food companies actually have made public commitments around reducing food waste and many of these companies most of these companies also are in the business of developing and launching new products every year and so when they're presented with a way to do both things um mm -hmm. in an integrated way uh you know, I mean, that's like, like we're really well positioned to to activate with uh, with with other food businesses commercially, and um, yeah, so feeling very you know encouraged about the readiness. Although I'm always concerned, I have to put this out to there, Justin. I'm always concerned about pace, you know, because we do not have decades to fix food. We need to fix it faster than that. And um, while I'm very encouraged about the direction things are going. Um, the physical economy is uh, is slow, honestly. You know, it takes so a couple of years the, for new products to get to market. One of the motivators I have personally is that pace is an issue in all of these sectors that are trying to be more efficient, reduce waste, and uh, there are like the physical things that have to be done, but there's also like the human decisions and behaviors that are also like can speed things up or slow things down or 
are there human behaviors or biases or misconceptions that exist that you think are obstacles that we need to get rid of or regulation or things, things like that, that humans are putting in place that really just needs to, we need to get over that so we can get to the hard work. Is there something that comes to mind when I ask that? Um, let's see, I'll, let's try and come up with a broader example, but like a very specific example to our sector that, that comes up when you, when you share that, um, it is the practice and for retailers to only change the items that they have on their shelf once, maybe twice per year. And there's reasons for that. For sure. I mean, it's it's a complicated it's a complicated thing, you know, in the physical economy to, to to do that. But that means that products that are so typically food companies know what they're launching. And once they know when something is launching, they have it ready about a year before that. That means it can be a year before that. Then they're deciding what they want to develop to then launch. What would that look like if the retailers reset their shelves six times per year and manufacturers had the brands, you know, had the opportunity to more in a more agile way to test new, new ideas and see how they perform and be more, be more iterative. Like a lot of the kinds of things that, that can happen in the digital economy around rapid iterations and, um, you know, they don't. They can't. They can't be affected in the same way in the in the physical physical economy. But like someone, you know, or some people have decided that like we reset our, our retail shelves once once or twice per year. Yeah. What would it look like if we did that more often? How 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 much? What, what would that do to pace? Right. I mean, that's just like one pretty uh, esoteric uh, example, but uh, something that comes. It's a great example. Here. It becomes industry norm, and we never question it. I not to turn this into a brainstorm, but I'm wondering, does the digital shelf potentially change that? I think about, I mean, just go back to beer for a second. I think about groups like Athletic Brewing who have subscriptions to a very prolific uh, styles that they're putting out. And I mean, if you think about just breweries in general, like they don't follow that rule. They're always, most of them, the micros yeah, well, are they're, they're being very creative. So I just, I wonder what will change that. Like what would, would finally cause that? There's going to have to be a pressure yeah, I mean, thing. so there's the like the what's cool is that the tools exist today for brands who want to use their website and e-commerce, you know, to to test and learn online. Although then they, it does require like a certain sophistication around digital marketing and you know and such. And it's generally much like a company's, especially an established company, like their e-commerce website is going to be yeah. a much smaller percentage of overall volume relative to what they could do if they get accepted into. Kroger nationally, you know, for example. Um, but similar to what you're asking about, I mean, there is, uh, you know, especially since COVID, like there was crazy growth around this and then it slowed down, you know, a little bit as things, you know, started to open back up and, and, and stabilize, but online, online retailers completely, you know, changed this game. And I'm uh, very heartened by the success of retailers like uh, uh, Imperfect Foods and Misfit, Misfit Market, which have since merged actually and there's now uh you know it's one one entity and they have um a great value proposition to customers around saving people money on their on their groceries as well as kind of being like a bit of a trader joe's online in the sense of like having really interesting private label products that you can only get there and 
you know, an online retailer has the ability to launch products at their, you know, at, at their whim. So I, you know, I do think that there's a, you know, there, there's things like that that are that are heartening, that are that are happening for sure. Hey everyone, we've learned a lot from this podcast series and we've put the good stuff in a handful of PDF frameworks. It's topics like messaging, channel strategy, and market fit. You can grab them at nativedigital.com slash resources.